couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, Les brought it to my attention that May 1st was the National Day of Prayer. And uh, we talked a little bit about that and, and talked about, you know, what, how can we prepare specifically ourselves? And how can we, since uh, it falls tomorrow, the day after our Wednesday night time together, our service together, how can we dial down and change things up a little bit and really focus on praying and focus on having some time to, to cry out to the Lord? And um, I thought, well, let, let, me, let me see where we're at just biblically. You know what, what we're studying and what what we fall on tonight specifically is the dedication of the temple in chapter eight and the prayer that Solomon prays and it seems so perfect for what we're doing and what we're going to be doing that we thought well let's have some teaching first and then we'll have some practicum as it were opportunity to to follow through together and to pray together and uh, so we're going to do that tonight. And we're going to start here in chapter 7. We're going to move pretty quickly through chapter 7, and then we'll slow down when we get to chapter 8. But let, let me pray once more before we enter into the Word. Father, we thank you for your Word, both written and spoken to our hearts. We praise you for, Lord, the, the security, the safety and the peace that we feel when we enter into your presence to listen. Father, that that picture of of Mary and Martha and Mary just sitting at your feet is so much of what we want our time with you to be about. Just sitting at your feet. Listening to you, Lord, tell the stories and and speak the words and teach us and, and grow us, Father, and breathe into us. Tonight, for the next few minutes, as we are in the Word, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you will speak to our hearts. Lord, as we've said before in here, I don't have any specific need or desire that anybody hear the words I'm speaking, but that you would speak tonight. And whether that be directly from your Word in the teaching, or Father, you may, you may take different people on on little rabbit trails of of thought and prayer even while this teaching is going on and that's okay because this is your time and so we ask Holy Spirit we just ask for you to use the time as you see fit in each one of our lives individually here tonight and corporately Father as we pray before just draw us closer to you in Jesus name Amen Chapter 7, verse 1, 1 Kings. Now Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished all his house. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits, on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the pillars. It was paneled with cedar above and with the side chambers, which were on the 45 pillars, 15 in each row. There were artistic window frames in three rows, and window was opposite window in three ranks. All the doorways and doorposts had square artistic frames, and window was opposite window in three ranks. And if you can follow that, you're a better man or person than I am. <laughs> then he made the hall of pillars, and its length was 50 cubits, and its width 30 cubits. And the porch was in front of them, and pillars and a threshold in front of them. And by the way, I just throw this out to you. When you're reading through the Bible and you see the word cubit, if you just think a foot and a half for every cubit, you're going to be close. So 18 inches is roughly what a cubit, there are a couple different measurements for cubits, but the most typical one used was about uh, the equivalent of 18 inches. So anytime you're reading through that, that might help you just to think in terms of that. So 50 cubits would actually be 75 feet. Okay? Um, Reading on verse 7, he made the hall of the throne where he was to judge, the hall of judgment, and it was paneled with cedar from floor to floor. His house where he was to live, the other court inward from the hall, was of the same workmanship. He also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom Solomon had married. All of these were of costly stones, of stone cut according to measure, sawed with saws, inside and outside. Even from the foundation to the copping, and so on the outside to the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, even large stones, stones of ten cubits and stones of eight cubits. And above were costly stones, stones cut according to measure and cedar, 
And so the great court all around had three rows of cut stone and a row of cedar beams, even as the inner court of the house of the Lord and the porch of the house. So Solomon, Solomon was an architect. And he built and designed much more than the temple. Now you know the, build, the temple was designed by David. It was David's plan, conceived in David's heart. Solomon was actually just the builder. I think we should call it the temple of David and not the temple of Solomon because it was David's plans that Solomon had built. But when you read on into chapter 7, we, we see the indication of three different homes that Solomon built. Once, either once the temple was finished or at the same time the temple was being built. And these verses indicate these three different homes. Solomon's palace in Jerusalem. Solomon's lodge in the forest of Lebanon. And then finally, a home for Pharaoh's daughter, Solomon's wife. I want you to think about these three just for a moment. And recognize something that I thought was interesting. If you end up verse 38 of chapter 6, you read in the 11th year in the month of Bull which is the eighth month, the house was finished, talking about the temple, throughout all its parts and according to all its plans. So he was seven years in building it. Seven years it took him to build the temple. But if you look at Solomon's house that he built, verse 1 of chapter 7, it was 13 years. He spent nearly twice as long on his own house as he did on the temple. Now, some say maybe it was because Solomon was distracted with other things, ruling and building the the temple, and so his house he just had to keep putting off. But I'm just not sure that was the case. I wonder if the reason why Solomon's house took twice as long to build was because it was more important to him than the temple was. They say home is where the heart is, and I wonder if that's the case with Solomon. Now, the temple's great. We got that for the Lord, but now, now I'm going to fix my dwelling. Matthew chapter 6 verse 19 says Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth Where moth and rust destroy And where thieves break in and steal But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven Where neither moth nor rust destroys And where thieves do not break in or steal For where your treasure is there your heart will be also And I really have to throw out the question Was Solomon's heart in his own home Much more so than it was in the temple And how about us Are our hearts in our own lives, our own busyness, our own homes, much more than they are in the temple of the Lord? Are we more about our stuff than we are about the Lord? Do we treasure our lives more than we treasure what God is doing and treasure His kingdom on earth? Now, some may say, and I've actually had this question brought up to me, that Rick, you're being awfully hard on Solomon as we've been studying his life. And I have been. I admit it. The last several teachings as we've looked at Solomon, I have picked on this guy pretty hard. And I've assumed some pretty negative things about him. And the truth is, I read ahead. I know the end of the story. I know where he ends up. And so it's not so much that I want to be hard on Solomon as much as I want to know why he ended up where he did. Ecclesiastes. You get to the end of Ecclesiastes and these are the words of a bitter man who has tried everything in life only to discover it doesn't mean anything. And even in his statement about here is the end of all things, fear God and there's nothing else in life, even that statement, though it's good to fear God, it seems to be a statement more of bitterness than of faith. If you read about Solomon in 1 Kings 11, we know his life was ended by turning away from God. Last thing we hear about Solomon is he turns away from God and God is angry and brings a judgment. So how did he get there? We know God ordained freedom to choose in the heart of man. And Solomon chose, and there are aspects of Solomon's life, chinks in his armor, fatal flaws that reveal why, at the end of his life, he ended up completely turning away from God. And that's why we keep pulling out the negatives here. And hopefully we see these things in Solomon's life, and in our own lives we can begin to recognize, man, that's a fatal flaw in me. And I need to turn from that now, so that I don't turn from God then. So Solomon's palace in Jerusalem, was it more important to him than the temple? I don't know, but it's entirely possible. Solomon built a lodge in the forest of Lebanon. And I just want to mention, Lebanon, like Israel across the centuries, was historically denuded of its trees. Completely wiped out. Lebanon as we see it today, just like Israel of today, is not the heavily forested place that it used to be. The cedars of Lebanon, gang, were famous worldwide. And there weren't just a handful of them. There were massive forests. And in fact, Solomon's Lodge was in one of those forests in Lebanon. The climate was different in those days, in Israel and in Lebanon. It is described historically as an absolutely beautiful place. 
But as Jerusalem was conquered and Israel was wiped out time and time again, eventually a tree tax was put on the land. What do people do when there's a tree tax? I'll tell you what I do. I cut down all my trees. If I'm having to pay for every tree that stands on my property, bye-bye trees. And that's what happened to the land. And so even the very climate change, because when you have no trees, it impacts climate. And Israel became a wiped out, dry, arid, horrible place. So students of prophecy, pay attention to this. And if you get to go to Israel, you will see this. The forests of Israel are growing again at a rapid rate. Cedar trees, pine trees, beautiful trees. In fact, if you drive and keep your eyes open driving from Jerusalem up to Tel Aviv, you drive by and the hills are covered with young trees growing everywhere. And even the climate in Israel is said to be changing because the trees are growing again. And the word indicated as much would happen. The third house that Solomon built was for Pharaoh's daughter. And you might ask the question, well, if he built a house for his wife Pharaoh's daughter, does he ultimately build enough houses for all of his wives and concubines? (laughs) That'd be a thousand houses. Because Solomon had a thousand wives and concubines. Talk about a government housing project. I mean, that would be huge. So all we know of is this this house for Pharaoh's daughter. He either had a special fondness for Pharaoh's daughter or the political alliance was very important. After all, that's where Solomon got his horses. Now going on, verse 13. King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. Now I want to point out this is a different Hiram than King Hiram from Tyre. Tyre had a king who kind of subcontracted with Solomon and sent a lot of the cedar trees down. But this is Hiram. This is a different guy. He was, verse 14, a widow's son from the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze, and he was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill for doing any work in bronze, so he came to King Solomon and performed all his work. This man, Hiram, was filled with wisdom. But listen to this. He was not filled with the Holy Spirit. And there is a difference. Turning your Bibles back to Exodus 31 for just a moment. Exodus 31 tells us something interesting about the building of the tabernacle that was different than the building of the temple. And I briefly mentioned this on Sunday. We compared Hiram, this builder that Solomon brought in, who was filled with wisdom and an artisan and a craftsman, and he was able to do wonderful things with bronze. But Hiram, though he was wise, was not spirit-filled like Bethuel was or like Oholiab was. Who? Exodus 31, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship. To make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and in bronze, and in the cutting of stones for settings, and in the carving of wood, that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. And behold, I myself, the Lord says, have appointed with him a holy the son of Achisamach of the tribe of Dan and in the hearts of all who are skillful I have put skill that they may make all that I have commanded you there's a different thing going on here and I point this out simply to say that the presence of wisdom does not indicate the presence of the Holy Spirit however the presence of the Holy Spirit does involve wisdom So you can be wise and not be spirit-filled, but I'm not sure you can be spirit-filled and not at least begin to become wise because the Holy Spirit is residing within. I had a great great conversation with the Lord this morning and learned something that kind of spun me around. I shared it with you last earlier. I was talking to the Lord and I was just saying, Lord, I need some patience in a certain area of my life. And I'm sure you've prayed for that before. And there's the old joke that goes around, don't pray for patience, you know, because God will make sure you learn it. (laughs) And so I'm just praying, Lord, I I need some patience. And and I began to think about patience. And the Lord said, you know, Rick, why pray for the fruit? What? I'm driving along. Why pray for the fruit? How about praying for the Spirit and the fruit will come? How often do we pray that God makes us more loving? Or, God, I just wish I could be more joyful. Lord, could you fill me with kindness? Lord, I need help in the area of self-control. Can you make me more self-controlled? And you know what's great? All of these things are fruit of the Spirit. So rather than praying for patience, how about we say, Lord, will you just fill me with more of your Spirit? Because the more Spirit-filled I am, guess what? The more patient I'm going to become. 
the more I pray that God fills me with His Spirit. And the picture I get literally is of a container that's being filled up and filled up and filled up. And God, yes, He gives us His Spirit to reside within us. He pours out His Holy Spirit upon us. But He doesn't stop there. I believe He will give us as much of His Spirit as we're willing to hold. And I think He will enlarge our spirits to hold more of His Spirit as we ask for it. So instead of saying, man, I, just, I need more fruit in my life... Ask for more of the Spirit. And He will bring the fruit through His very presence. An apple tree doesn't have to work that hard to produce apples. It just does. And so a man or woman filled with the Holy Spirit of God doesn't need to work so hard at patience or kindness or self-control because the Spirit is at work producing that fruit. Amen? And so Bezalel and Oholiab, these guys were Spirit-filled. Hiram was not. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And I hang my hat on that verse quite a bit. If I'm not sure what to do, I just say, Lord, you know, wisdom. It's a promise. All i got to do is ask. James 3.13, he says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Now listen to this. Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. There is a demonic wisdom. I had never realized that before. There's a kind of wisdom that is sly and sharp and clever and sneaky. And it's demonic. And Paul says that's not the wisdom we're looking for. James says this. He says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there's disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, and then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so there's a wisdom that is from above, and it is a wisdom that I believe comes with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Ask for more of the Spirit, you will receive more wisdom. Ask for more of the Spirit, and you will receive more of the fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 15, going on. Tells us this man, Hiram, fashioned the two pillars of bronze. And uh, 18 cubits was the height of one pillar, and the line 12 cubits measured the circumference of both. And he also made two capitals of molten bronze to set on the tops of the pillars. The height of the one capital was five cubits, the height of the other was five cubits. There were nets of network and twisted threads of chain work for the capitals, which were on top of the pillars, seven for one capital and seven for the other capital. And so he made the pillars in two rows around each one uh, on the one network to cover the capitals, which were on the top of the pomegranates. And so he did for the other capital. Well, if you're into building and design and everything, feel free to go back and read through all this and try and figure out exactly what it looked like. I still don't have a clue. Verse 19, the capitals which were on the top of the pillars of the porch were of lily design, four cubits. There were capitals on the two pillars, each above and close to the rounded projection, which was beside the network, and the pomegranates numbered 200 in rows around both capitals. Thus he set up the pillars of the porch of the nave, and he set up the right pillar and named it Joachim, and he set up the left pillar and named it Boaz. Now, gang, these pillars are in the temple. This is now not for Solomon's house. This is Hiram building the pillars in the temple, Joachim or Joachim and Boaz. And we're going to look more closely at those on Sunday. And what? why would you name pillars and what does this mean? But verse 22, on the top of the pillars was lily designed, so the work of the pillars was finished. Verse 23, now he made the sea of cast metal, ten cubits, that would be fifteen feet, from brim to brim. Circular in form. The sea, by the way of cast, this is the bronze laver that I mentioned on Sunday. He's making a new bronze laver, a bronze uh, wash basin, basically, for use in the temple. From brim to brim, ten cubits, circular in form, its height was five cubits, and then thirty cubits in circumference. So what does that mean? It means from one brim to the other, one side to the other, it was 15 feet across this big bowl for washing, this swimming pool of a bronze laver. 15 feet across, it was 7.5 feet high, and it was 30, no, 45 feet all the way around this bowl. This was a big, honking bronze laver. 
Verse 24, under its brim gourds went around encircling it, ten to a cubit, completely surrounding the sea. The gourds were in two rows, cast with the rest. It stood on twelve oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. And the sea was set on top of them, and all their rear parts turned inward, which I think is a good thing. Because if they put this, if you can imagine this big bronze bowl, 45 feet all the way around this thing, sitting on top of these 12 bronze oxen, three on each side, you want the, the oxen facing out. So that's a good thing. Verse 26, it was a hand breadth thick. Its brim was like the brim of a cup as a lily blossom it could hold 2,000 baths. And by the way, this is a discrepancy. Second Chronicles chapter 4, verse 5 says it could hold 3,000 baths. And what that means, 2,000 baths would be about 11,500 gallons of water. 3,000 baths would be 17,500 gallons of water. And I think the difference is simply in the dip between usage and capacity. It may have had a capacity for 3,000 baths, but its usage, they would only fill it up to the level of 2,000 baths. Which makes sense to me, because my bathtub holds a lot more water when I'm not in it than when I'm in it. So, I think that's what's going on there. Verse 27. Then he made ten stands of bronze. He's moving away now from the bronze labor, and he's making ten stands. The length of each stand was four cubits, its width was four cubits, its height was three cubits. This was the design of the stands. They had borders, even borders between the frames. And on the borders were, the, were between the frames were lions, oxen, and cherubim, verse 29. And on the frames there was a pedestal above, and beneath the lions and oxen were wreaths of hanging work. And now each stand had four bronze wheels with bronze axles, and its four feet had supports. Beneath the basin were cast supports with wreaths at each side. It, its opening inside the crown at the top was a cubit. Its opening was round, like the design of a pedestal, a cubit and a half. And also, on its opening there were engravings. And their borders were square, not round. The four wheels were underneath the borders, and the axles of the wheels were on the stand. And the stand of a wheel was a cubit and a half. The workmanship of the wheels was like the workmanship of a chariot wheel. Their axles, their rims, their spokes, their hubs were all cast. And now there were four supports at the four corners of each stand. Its supports were part of the stand itself. On top of the stand there was a circular form, half a cubit high. And on the top of the stand its stays and its borders were part of it. He, this is Hiram still, engraved on the plates of its stays and on its borders, cherubim, lions, and palm trees, according to the clear space on each, with wreaths all around. He made ten stands like this, all of them... Of what had one casting, one measure, one form. And then he made ten basins of bronze. One basin held forty baths. Each basin was four cubits. On, on each of the ten stands was one basin. And then he set the stands, five on the right side of the house, five on the left side of the house, that is the temple. And he had set the sea of cast metal on the right side of the house, eastward toward the south. What, what is this talking about? There were, four, there were several um, smaller labors. There was the big bronze sea for the massive washing but then there were smaller ones that were six feet square and five feet high and these things were on wheels and could be carted out and moved around on rolling stands for the washing of individual sacrifices why is that important because as we'll see when the people of Israel came in to sacrifice there were a massive massive number of sacrifices that went on this took much more than the work of one priest. The whole entire temple courtyard would be filled with priests who were offering up sacrifices and then doing the washing and the cleansing and following all, all of the, uh, the, uh, the law of the Lord, everything required to make sure it was done correctly. And so this whole temple area in the outer courtyard was blood and washing and cleansing and sacrifice and all this was going on. So Solomon planned ahead and had these smaller labors made as well. Now hang with me. This, this is the stuff that I promised the Lord when we started back four and a half years ago. Started reading through the word that I wouldn't skip a sentence. There are times when I'm reading a sentence and I go, wouldn't have minded skipping that one. But And this section is just kind of a lot of the temple stuff and the final stuff being put together. So verse 40, going on, Hiram made the basins and the shovels and the bowls. So Hiram finished doing all the work which he performed for King Solomon in the house of the Lord. The two pillars and the two bowls of the capitals which were on top of the two pillars and the two networks to cover the two bowls of the capitals which were on top of the two pillars. And the 400 pomegranates 
pomegranates for the two networks, the two rows of pomegranates for each network to cover the two bowls of the capitals which were on top of the pillars. And the ten stands with the ten basins on the stands, and the one sea and the twelve oxen under the sea, and the pails and the shovels and the bowls, even all these utensils which Hiram made for King Solomon in the house of the Lord were of polished bronze. In the plain of the Jordan where the, uh, the king cast them, in the clay ground beneath Sukkot and Zarephan. Solomon left all the utensils unweighed because they were too many. The weight of the bronze could not be ascertained. Solomon made all the furniture which was in the house of the Lord. The golden altar, the golden table on which was the bread of the presence, and the lampstands, five on the right side, five on the left, in front of the inner sanctuary of pure gold. And the flowers, and the lamps, and the tongs of gold, and the cups, and the snuffers, and the bowls, and the spoons, and the fire pans of pure gold, and the hinges, both for the doors of the inner house, the most holy place, and for the doors of the house, that is, of the nave, of gold. Thus all the work that King Solomon performed in the house of the Lord was finished, and Solomon brought in the things dedicated by his father David, the silver and the gold and the utensils, and he put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. Now listen, before we get on into Solomon's prayer, there is a beautiful spiritual picture here to recognize that we would miss if we got into this section of scripture and just said this is just building stuff it's boring and it doesn't apply it does apply everything that we just read if we put it together we understand something when it was all completed the outer courts everything in the outer courts from the, from the sea to the altar of sacrifice to all the, the smaller seas or labors all of that was made of bronze everything that went on outside of the temple was made of bronze Everything that went on in the inner courts of the temple were pure gold. In the treasuries of the temple, there were things that were dedicated as well that were both silver and gold. And those went into the temple treasuries, things that David had said, this is just dedicated to the Lord. But when you walked into the holy place of the temple, there wasn't a cup, there wasn't a spoon, there wasn't a shovel, there wasn't a table. There was nothing in there that was not pure gold. All you could see in the holy place was gold. When you went into the most holy place, all you could see, floor to wall to ceiling, was pure gold. Why does that matter to us? Gang, it's a picture of the temple that is you. You are that temple. And there's bronze on the outside, but you know what? Bronze tarnishes. Bronze needs to be buffed, it needs to be cleaned up, it needs to be worked on, it dents easier. Stone can get chipped. And on the outside of the temple, there was the stone. Remember the stone first, and then the cedar lining, and then the gold on the inside. On the outside, we're a little rough. (laughs) And we do get tarnished. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4-7, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. On the inside, if you were to look at my spirit that is surrounded, covered, overlaid by the Spirit of Christ, it would be pure gold. And that's what God's looking at. And that's what He's doing. Gold is just that picture of that lasting metal. Its value on earth is because it is so lasting. And so on the inside, we are golden if in fact Jesus Christ is living within us. Gold in the Bible always speaks of the deity of Christ Jesus. And the wonder of walking with Jesus is the presence of the deity residing, abiding, living within this sometimes bronze sometimes chipped stone fleshy temple but on the outside you're not going to walk into any grocery store and people wouldn't have a clue what was going on in my heart they wouldn't be able to really see oh they can see by the fruit maybe I happen to be listening to the spirit on that particular day as opposed to my flesh (laughs) but what's going on on the inside this verse blows me away John 14.23 Jesus said if anyone loves me he will keep my word And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. And I'm not sure if we spend enough time realizing the presence of the Father and the Son in our hearts, in our spirits. The gold of God. So, 
So Rick, are you implying Oprah Winfrey's declaration that we are gods? No. (laughs) Not even close. What I'm saying here, what the Word tells us is that we are being transformed from the inside to the outside. And the outside doesn't always show it. But God is doing a work inside. And that work, gang, is golden. We are not what we will be, John tells us. He says, now we are sons of God. It does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. We don't look the way we're going to look. But on the inside, He is at work. Part of the reason I tell you that is just to encourage you because I think we all have those days where we are chipped stone and tarnished bronze and we're not doing too good. And we look in the mirror or we look at our behavior in our lives and we say, just when I thought I was really starting to draw close to the Lord, I do this. And yet, and yet, what we forget is even in the moment when we're acting in the flesh, God is good. He's still working. He's still doing what He does best. And you know what that does for me? It gives me a whole lot more grace. Because I start to recognize that in brothers and sisters and other believers. I start to say, you know what? There's a little tarnish here, but, but wow. I can't even imagine what's going on inside. It also gives myself a little more grace. And I realize when I lose it, God's still at work. Praise God, He loves us that much and He is still doing what He does. So there's gold in these these here temples. Jesus is working His way from the inside out. Now, what I wanted to get to, chapter 8. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel Israel, and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' households, and all the sons of Israel to King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is in Zion. Or which is Zion. All of the men of Israel assembled themselves to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ephanim, which is the seventh month. Goes on and tells us, Then all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. And they brought up the ark of the Lord, and the tent of meeting, and all the holy utensils which were in the tent. And the priests and the Levites brought them up. Verse 5, King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel, who were assembled to him, were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen, they could not be counted or numbered. And then the priest brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the house to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. Remember those two 15-foot tall cherubim in the holy place that would overshadow the Ark of the Covenant that would sit there in the middle in that place in the temple. Verse 7, the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim made a covering over the ark and its poles from above. But the poles were so long that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary. But they could not be seen outside. It says, they are there to this day, which by the way, that verse indicates to us that this part, at least of Kings, was written before 586 B.C. We can date it before that because 586 was the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. So at least when the writer was writing this, things were pretty normal. The ark was in the temple. The poles were there and could be seen there in the temple. Verse 9, there was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb where the Lord made a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt and that tells us something else you may recall if you've studied back in Exodus that the only things in the ark here at this time are the two stone tablets of the Ten Commandments but there was more in the ark before wasn't there? Hebrews chapter 9 verse 4 says the Ark of the Covenant was covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. But now at this point we're told that only the tables of the covenant were in there which means the jar of manna has been removed and the rod of Aaron that budded somehow these two things are no longer there. Where they went, who took them out, how they disappeared, no idea. But watch this. It happened that when the priest came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Do you remember the cloud? 
As the children of Israel traveled through the wilderness, traveled through the desert, those 40 years, there was always the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. But this just wasn't a puff of smoke, gang. It said that the cloud itself, the reason why it was seen as a pillar of fire at night was because the cloud itself was smoke and fire all mixed. And at night it was that you could see the light of it. During the day you saw more of the cloud, but there was that brightness to it. It's called the Shekinah glory. That's where that word comes from. Shekinah glory is referring to this very cloud. And when Solomon brought the ark into the temple, that first temple built in Jerusalem, literally the glory, God sent his glory in to fill it up. And it was so full, it was so intense, the priests couldn't even go in there. They, just, they had to get out. Because the presence of God was so absolutely awesome. Now, you might ask, okay, Rick, well, if what you said on Sunday is true, and Solomon went overboard in the construction of the temple, but the temple became a religious thing, why did the Lord fill it with His glory? Well, let me answer that question with another question. Why does God ever do any good thing in our lives? Why does He fill this temple with His glory? Why does God ever choose to do something with someone like me? I'll tell you why. Because He loves me. He filled the temple with His glory because He loved Solomon. He loved the children of Israel. Was the temple exactly what God wanted? Did He call for it? Did He even ask for it? No. But when they built it, He said, You know, I love these kids. I just love them. And so I'm going to honor this. And he filled it up. Listen, there was nothing inherently wrong with building the temple, just as there's nothing wrong with constructing a church building as a place for meeting. But as I talked about on Sunday, the crisis comes when the building becomes the focus and when relational simplicity is replaced with religious complexity. And in the temple, I do believe the simplicity of the tabernacle was lost for the complexity of all that Solomon did and all the worship and the regulations. And yet, in spite of all that... God sends the Shekinah glory, his bright cloud of his intense glory into the temple, saying to the children of Israel and to Solomon, Gang, I'm here with you. I am with you. Another reminder that for all the glory that he's developing and the gold that's inside of us, he also still chooses to fill us in spite of our silly human selves because he loves us. And because he just wants to be where we are. Now, Solomon turns and addresses the people, verse 12. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in the thick cloud. I have surely built you a lofty house, a place for your dwelling forever. And then the king faced about and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David and has fulfilled it with his hand, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel from Egypt, I did not choose a city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David. I have that highlighted in my Bible. I chose David. God didn't choose a house for himself. He chose a man to bless. And he does the same with you. He doesn't choose your abilities, your success, your building, what you can do or produce. He chooses you. Because again, He loves you. Since I chose David to be over my people Israel, Solomon goes on, Now, it was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you should not build the house, but your son who will be born to you, he will build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke, for I have risen in the place of my father David, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. There I have set a place for the ark, which is, in the, which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them from the land of Egypt. And Solomon is doing something wonderful here. He is setting a landmark. He's pausing in life long enough to say, look at what God has done. He fulfilled what he said he would fulfill. And we can learn from that because I think sometimes in our lives we are so about going forward that we don't at times pause and recognize what He's done. Look at the blessings that have flowed. Look at the fulfillment of promises. I was 
I was a kid. I was 16 years old. I've shared before when God called me to ministry. And as a kid, I, I remember praying specifically, Lord, you know, my life would be so complete if, if you brought a, a Christian girl into my life that, that I could marry. And if I could have some kids who believe in you. And, and if I could just serve in a church, that'd be cool. And I had a lot of respect at that time for our pastor and thought, I'd like to do that. And I remember praying it and saying, Lord, you know it would be really cool would be someday to be able to maybe start a church and see it grow. And so at this point in my life, I can stop and look back and go, look at what God has done. This is so great. I don't know what He has in store coming ahead, but I can tell you in this moment, everything that I prayed in that prayer as a kid, He has fulfilled. Praise God. It just makes me want to dance around and say hallelujah. <laughs> and it's not that big a deal, you know? I, I mean, it's not like this big life-shattering thing, but He has fulfilled the problem. I prayed, I asked, He answered. And I guarantee you He has done that in each and every single one of our lives. We just need to stop and look. We need to pause like Solomon and say, look at what He has done. In this moment, He has fulfilled the promises going all the way back to Egypt 480 years He's fulfilled it. He said he'd do it, and now he has done it. Awesome. Now, Solomon begins to pray, and I'm going to read you the whole prayer without commentary, and then I want to say a couple of things about it before we pause and pray ourselves. But as I read through this prayer, just listen to it. Maybe the way it might have been heard when Solomon spoke it without commentary, this is what he said, verse 22. Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. He said, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servants, my father David, that which you have promised him, indeed you have spoken with your mouth and have fulfilled it with your hand as it is today. Therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel, keep with your servant David, my father, that which you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel if only your sons take heed to their way to walk before me as you have walked. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word, I pray, be confirmed which you have spoken to your servant, my father David. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today, that your eyes may be open toward this house night and day, toward the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, to listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray toward this place. Listen to the supplication of your servants and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Here in heaven, your dwelling place, hear and forgive. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath, and he comes and takes an oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, if they turn to you again and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you and they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin which you, when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and of your people Israel. Indeed, teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land which you have given your people for an inheritance. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence, if there is a blight or mildew, locust or grasshopper, if their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague 
Whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all your people, Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and spreading his hands toward this house, then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men that they may fear you and that all the days that they live in the land which you have given to our fathers. But also concerning the foreigner who is not of your people Israel when he comes from a far country for your name's sake. For they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm when he comes and prays toward this house. Here in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name to fear you as do your people Israel. And that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. When your people go out to battle against their enemy by whatever way you shall send them. And they pray to the Lord toward the city which you have chosen and the house which I have built for your name. Then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause when they sin against you. For there is no man who does not sin. And you are angry with them and deliver them to an enemy so that they take them away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near. If they take thought in the land where they have been taken captive, and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who have taken them captive saying we have sinned and have committed iniquity we have acted wickedly if they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who have taken them captive and pray to you toward their land which you have given to their fathers the city which you have chosen and the house which I have built for your name then hear their prayer and their supplication in heaven your dwelling place and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you and make them objects of compassion before those who have taken them captive that they may have compassion on them for they are your people and your inheritance which you have brought forth from Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace that your eyes may be opened to the supplication of your servant and the supplication of your people Israel to listen to them whenever they call to you for you have separated them from all the peoples of the earth as your inheritance as you spoke through Moses your servant when you brought your fathers forth from Egypt O Lord God Embedded in this prayer game are at least three. And you can go back and, and spend some time on this. I encourage you to do it in your own time and meditation. Meditate over and pray through the prayer of Solomon. It's, it's a wonderful prayer. But I just tonight want to point out three elements here. Three obvious things for effective prayer. James says in James 5.16, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Well, I want to pray like that. I want to pray righteously, but I want to pray effectively. I don't want my, you know, as was it Macbeth, I think, who was praying in a Shakespearean play, and he said, my words go up, my thoughts stay low, words without thoughts never to heaven go. I don't want to be that way. I don't want my words to be empty. And so how do I pray effectively? What are the elements of effective prayer? Again and again, you see this repeated by Solomon throughout the prayer. Verse 33, he says, turn, confess, pray verse 35 he says pray confess turn verse 47 he says take thought repent make supplication and in these verses and throughout the prayer are three elements to vital fervent effective prayer repentance confession and supplication and Solomon returns to these things again and again repentance, confession, supplication repentance because Solomon prayed in verse 39 Lord you alone know the hearts of all of the sons of men and he says in verse 46 for there is no man who does not sin so God knows our hearts and we all sin and so guess what repentance is par for the course for every human being who wants to approach a holy God and repentance is simply just turning. Many of you have heard that before. It's just turning around. To repent is to turn. 
to change your mind, to change your direction. And you might say, well, wait a minute, didn't you just compare our hearts to the gold of the temple? No, I didn't. <laughs> what I said was, like the gold in the temple, there's glory here, but it's not mine. It's His. And it's His work changing me. And it's His presence that is gold. I'm like the cedar. <laughs> I'm the wooden-headed sinner who just can't seem to get it right. No matter how far I travel, I continue to, to goof it up, but I'm covered by His pure gold, His purity, His divine presence, and that is changing me. And yet, when I approach the Father in prayer, I must, as Solomon says in verse 38, I must know the affliction of my own heart. I know when I approach the Lord that I do not approach in my perfection, but covered by the blood of Jesus. I can approach him boldly, the Hebrew writer says, because of what Jesus has done and not because of my perfection. And so I come forward in repentance, knowing the affliction of my heart. As Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15, it's a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost. That was Paul. I don't stack up too well against Paul. The foremost of all sinners. Man, if Paul was the foremost sinner, who am I? Where is that putting me on the, on the scale there? Same place as Paul. Forgiven. One who knows the affliction of his heart, but also knows the grace of a loving God. So we come to him in repentance, turning. And that turning, it's so hard for us to buy. How many conversations have you had with people, or how many times have you yourself thought, you know, I've just traveled too far from the Lord. And yet, the moment we turn, we are in His presence. No matter how far we think we've wandered or walked, the second we turn around, we're there. It is not a long journey back. So we approach in prayerful repentance. Repentance is first and primary in prayer. Second thing is confession. But I thought about something here. Solomon said, look again in verse 33, he says, If they turn to you, that's repentance again, and confess your name, and pray and make supplication to you in this house and here in heaven. Confession is more than just delineating my list of sins. Now that's typically what I think of, at least in terms of confession, yet... Confession and repentance then seem to kind of go hand in hand. Repentance, I'm turning around and then confession, I'm, I'm giving the list. Okay, here's what I've done this week, Lord. Here's the problem. What if I forget something? You know, I'm confessing it. I've gone down the list, but I forgot number six in a list of 75. I've just missed that one. <laughs> so am I now not forgiven for that one sin? Well, if you know God's grace, you know it's much bigger than our forgetfulness. But here's the thing. I think we may have missed what confessional prayer truly is. As opposed to a focus of the list of our sins, and I do believe we need to bring those to the Father. And we need to openly and honestly say, this is where I'm at. But I think there's a, a matter of confession here that we need to hear. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul doesn't say if you confess with the list of your sins that you'll be saved. He says if you confess Jesus as Lord. 1 John 2.23, John says, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. 1 John 4.15, Whoever confesses Jesus is the Son of God. God abides in Him and He in God. And Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 32, Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. He doesn't say everybody who confesses their list of sins. And the Bible, by the way, does indicate we should do that in other verses. But in this case, Jesus says, I need you to confess my name. Confess the name. In Hebrew, Hashem. Confess the name of Christ. Why? What does that do? Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus speaking to lethargic Laodicea, which, by the way, overlaps the world in which we live today. Some of the church, at least, is Laodicea. And Jesus says, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. What do I need to do to get my name confessed before the Lord by Jesus? Jesus says, Confess my name. Confess my name. 
This is an aspect, gang, I believe, that brings more kingdom and authority to, to our prayer than just about anything else. And that is the declaration of the kingdom authority of Jesus Christ over my life. Now I got some wisdom from my brother, Les, as we talked through this a little bit this morning. And I got to share with you what, what Les shared with me. Confession not to be confused with repentance is that declaration of the person of Jesus who took our sins on himself. But listen to this. Repentance is about turning and returning authority to the Father. See, when I repent, I'm turning around and I am now literally taking back what I have given to the enemy and I'm giving it to the Lord. Even the ugly stuff. The sin that I've given to the enemy, I'm taking. I'm saying, Satan, you don't have power over me in this area anymore because I am turning around and I am giving it to the Lord. Repentance, confession is then declaring that authority in my life to be Jesus Christ. And here's where I think sometimes we miss the power when we pray of repentance and confession. We get lost in the sin as opposed to getting caught up in the name of Jesus who took our sin on himself. I turn to God declaring then in confession his authority, his power. What does this look like? It means saying, Lord, I'm back. And I declare in this moment, Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life. I re-declare it. I re-proclaim it. There have been times in this farm where we have just simply had to declare Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus has authority here. Not Rick. Not Lex. Not Pat or Larry or Cheryl or anybody else. Jesus has the authority here. Jesus has the authority to do with my life whatever he wants to do. And I confess before you tonight that Jesus is my Lord. How about you? How about just saying that? Jesus is my Lord. Really? Can you believe that? Proclaim it. Jesus is my Lord. Amen. Do you know what the, what the demons do when they hear that? Oh man, we got no authority there. They flee at the sound of the name. They take glee at the sound of my sin. As I'm going down the list and I'm going, man, I did this, and I did that, and I did this, and oh, there's that to it. Oh, and, and I'm just, have you ever gotten mired in the list of your sins? That's easy to do. But man, when I am confessing the kingdom authority of Jesus Christ over me and over my sin, the sins just go away like this. Yeah, I did that, but Jesus has authority. Yeah, I, I sinned here, but Jesus, you have authority. Jesus' blood, Jesus' forgiveness, it is all about Jesus. And that is powerful praying game. When you repent, you turn, and you confess the name of Jesus Christ. And by the way, I'm going to point this out to you quickly. That's exactly what Daniel did. In Daniel chapter 9, I'm not going to read this chapter to you. I want to save more time for us to pray. But in Daniel chapter 9, it's a great prayer to read. Daniel... It says in verse 3 of that chapter, I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. See, Daniel was sitting there reading the book of Jeremiah. And Daniel realized, he's counting up and he's seeing the prophecy of the, of the captivity in Babylon. And Daniel is in Babylon. And they've been there 70 years. And Daniel says, oh, that's how long the Lord says we're going to be here. 70 years. So what does Daniel do? Start packing his bag? New. No. What Daniel does... If he falls on his knees, he gets in sackcloth and ashes, which is the posture of repentance, and he begins to cry out to the Lord for the sins of his people Israel. And I want you to know something about Daniel. Aside from Jesus in the Bible, Daniel is the only other person where there's not a single sin listed in his life. I'm not saying he didn't sin because he was human, but he is one of the most righteous people listed in Scripture. And yet, when it came time, when he realized the prophecy was about over, his response was to fall to his knees in repentance. That, by the way, the National Day of Prayer, that's what this country needs for us to do. Is to repent. And to fall on our knees. And gang, you might say, yeah, but I'm not like those politicians in Washington. I didn't get us into this mess. We're part of this country. And we can cry out for this country in repentance. And if we want the Lord to continue to work through and save this country, we better start repenting for everything that our country has done in violation 
purposes of the Lord's will. And there's a lot. There's an awful lot. Daniel takes it on himself. And man, read through that. Maybe tonight or tomorrow sometime. In fact, Solomon's prayer and Daniel's prayer both would be great if you want to spend some time tomorrow for the National Day of Prayer and meditate and just think through something to kind of get the ball rolling as you start to pray. In Daniel's prayer, at the end of this prayer, Gabriel, the angel, shows up. And Gabriel just says this one verse, Daniel 9.23, At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. And because Daniel had a repentant, confessional heart, and by the way, in that prayer, he cries out the name, and he confesses the name. Because Daniel had that posture in prayer, we receive one of the greatest prophetic timelines in the entire Bible. Daniel 9, 24 through 27 gives the timeline of the history of Israel and what's still coming. Because one man said, I repent. Not even just for himself, but for my people. I repent. And I confess the name. And God responds, man, through repentance and confession, I then become heart ready to bring my prayers, my requests, my supplications to the Lord. So rather than shooting right for supplications, why don't you pause in prayer and repent and confess the name first? And you'll find yourself ready to actually ask, because now you'll be asking with the heart of the Lord. Now, if we finish out this. It's just an amazing chapter. I want you to notice one more thing. A change in Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 54. When Solomon had finished praying his entire prayer and supplication to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread toward heaven. And he stood and he blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying... Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all he has promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise which he promised through Moses his servant. Oh, may the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us that he may incline our hearts to himself and to walk in all his ways. There's that phrase again. To walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, his ordinances which he commanded our fathers. And may these words of mine, with which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no one else. Let your whole heart, your heart therefore, be wholly devoted to the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments as at this day. Now the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifice before the Lord. Solomon offered for the sacrifice and peace offerings which he offered to the Lord 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the sons of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. And on the same day the king consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord because there he offered the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat of the peace offerings for the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to hold the burnt offerings and the grain offering and the fat of the peace offerings. Solomon observed the feast at that time. By the way, it was the Feast of Tabernacles that they were observing. And all Israel with them, a great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God for seven days and seven more days, even 14 days. Look back at verse 54 when Solomon had finished praying this entire prayer and supplication to the Lord he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees was Solomon kneeling when he started praying? you can check back at verse 22 which tells us Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven he spreads out his hands and he just starts to pray and by the time he's done, sometime in the middle of the prayer, Solomon goes down. Solomon ends up on his knees. He went from standing king to kneeling servant. Because prayer is humbling. 
And if there's anything else, man, if you remember three things out of this whole thing, remember repentance, confession, and remember humility. Prayer humbles me. You can't come before the Lord and acknowledge His holiness and His greatness and His righteousness and His perfection and not be humbled. And gang, I question whether prayer that does not evoke humility is even prayer at all. And we just toss up a few words and continue on and we haven't even paused to acknowledge that He is King and we are not. And have we even prayed? James 4.10 Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. Daniel 10 verse 12 Gabriel said to Daniel Do not be afraid Daniel for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding and on humbling yourself before your God your words were heard and I have come in response to your words. May we move from standing kings and queens to kneeling servants as we pray. Bible study, though incredibly important, won't do it the way prayer will. Ministry and service, though that's what we're called to, will not humble us the way prayer will. In fact, of all the things that we're taught and led to understand in Scripture, there's only one that truly humbles us, and that's prayer. And that's why it's so important. I'm I'm so glad you all are here tonight. Because it's about prayer. On the eighth day, he sent the people away and they blessed the king. They went to their tents joyful and glad of heart. Why? For all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David his servant and to Israel his people. Let's bow for a moment. Father, we praise you. Lord, we love you. And we thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us, even this very night. We invite your spirit to be here among us. And we ask now, Father, that as we pause to pray together, you will touch us. And you will humble us. And as Solomon prayed, you will hear us. In Jesus' name, amen.